Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Derek starts his podcast with a trip to the National Portrait Gallery located just off Trafalgar Square, then on to Mayfair to visit the Faraday Museum at the Royal Institute, and along the way uncovers other great museums in London. The history of the National Portrait Gallery starts in 1840s, um, when it was suggested by uh, one of the trustees, um, Earl Stanhope, that there should be a National Portrait Gallery, and it was raised in Parliament, and it was given consent by Queen Victoria, and it was founded in 1856. In 1969, the history of the National Portrait Gallery had a very big milestone. Unless you were the reigning monarch, you had to be dead. Sir Roy Strong changed those rules and said, why don't we have people on the walls who are alive today? And so what you saw in that time was a much wider range of people, and that policy continues to this day. The National Portrait Gallery continues to acquire portraits and it also commissions portraits. Recently we've had uh, portraits painted of Dame Maggie Smith, the actress, Gail Reebuck, the publisher, and Dame uh, Sally Davis, the chief medical officer, which gives you an idea of the range of people that the gallery collects to put on its walls. On display in the National Portrait Gallery are about 10% of the gallery's collection, which is absolutely huge. So we obviously don't have the room to display everything. So what's great about that is that there's always new things for people to see. And then if people want to see portraits that aren't on the walls, then of course the website has the great majority of them. And also lots of our exhibitions, lots of our portraits tour Britain and tour internationally. Very recently, we had a, an exchange programme with Moscow. Um, we had an exhibition called Russia and the Arts. The interest in Russian-related things at the moment is vast. Um, and we had uh, an exhibition of portraits from the Tretyakov Gallery, 23 of their major portraits of people like Tolstoy and Tchaikovsky. Um, and then in return, we sent uh, a few of our portraits, which the Tretyakov visitors could see, such as Shakespeare and Dickens. So there's a lot of um, cooperation of loans of portraits between different countries. 
we have the BP Portrait Award, which is the biggest portrait painting competition in the world. And uh, thousands and thousands of people enter it. And 55 of the top portraits go into an exhibition, which can be seen for free. So that's one of the main exhibitions that are bringing uh, visitors to the National Portrait Gallery this summer. The portraits here at the National Portrait Gallery surprise a lot of people. In the room that we're in here now, we probably fulfil the view that a lot of people might have who've not come in here, that the portraits are of people looking rather important with wigs. But there's much more to it in this gallery than that. Um, anything that is a portrait, the gallery is, is interested in collecting. So that could be a photograph, it could be a sculpture, it could be a video installation, it could be something on a computer loop. It could be um, an artist's head made of his own frozen blood. If it's a portrait, we're interested in collecting it. Both art and science have had a home at the Royal Institution for over 200 years, and Charlotte is curator of collections. Could you tell me something about where we are, please, Charlotte? Uh, so this is the main lecture theatre of the Royal Institution, um, and we've been here since 1799. The Royal Institution was formed to be a public place of science um, and we're the UK's oldest science communication institution. The development of photography was announced here by Henry Fox Talbot in 1839. James Clark Maxwell did his three-colour photograph and demonstrated that to the public here for the first time. Mybridge showed the zoetrope and the moving images for the first time here. The discovery of the electron was announced here. So those kind of people want to come and stand where Faraday lectured or where, you know, Very the great important. and the good lectured. So when you say that things were discovered or invented here, was this a working laboratory? Yes. And we still have, uh, I think there's six wet chemistry laboratories in the building where we're doing a project with UCL on nanotechnology. What's your favourite part of the whole building? My favourite part is the library. It's so light and before this lecture theatre was converted into the space that you see now in 1800, the library held the early lecture space um, and there's a fantastic mirror in the library that uh, has stood in that space since 1804 and has not moved. The museum holds all of the discoveries that were made on the, in the building or used in lectures, including all of Faraday's apparatus. Um, and you'll get a quite a surprise when you go down to the museum and you'll see things like the first ever thermos flask, for instance, that was made here in 1892. Uh, greenhouse gases were discovered here in 1861 by John Tyndall. John Tyndall also proved why the sky was blue and did all of that kind of research here. And then Humphrey Davies. 2016 is the 200th anniversary of the development of the miners' safety lamp, so the Davy lamp, and all of the original Davy lamps are downstairs. Smithfield is home to St Bartholomew's Hospital, one of the oldest hospitals in Europe. Originally built in 1123 for the poor of Smithfield by a former courtier of King Henry I, it was refounded by King Henry VIII in 1546 after encountering financial troubles. As such, the entrance is home to the only statue of Henry VIII in London. Today, St Bart's as it's known, is a leading internationally renowned teaching hospital. The area also has a somewhat darker side. The elms at Smithfield was used as an execution site with a range of gruesome methods, including hangings, beheadings and burning at the stake. 
On one of the hospital walls is a memorial to Sir William Wallace, a Scottish patriot who fought a war of independence against the English crown. After being captured in Scotland in 1305, he was transported to London, found guilty of treason, before succumbing to a gory death at this site later that year. After being tortured, his body was quartered and each piece was sent to four different locations in Britain to serve as a warning to potential future rebels. Next, I'm off to Sutton House, a Tudor home built in 1535 by a prominent courtier of Henry VIII, Sir Ralph Sadler. The house retains much of the atmosphere of a Tudor home, despite some alterations by later occupants that include a succession of merchants, Huguenot silk weavers and even squatters. It features oak panelled rooms, original fireplaces and a charming courtyard. The house was taken over by squatters in the 1980s before the local community rallied together to save Sutton House. The Linenfold Parlour is the room that gets its name from the intricate patterns carved into the wood panelling. Historically, the cellar would have been used to store things like beer, wine and food. Today, it reveals the foundations of the house. Brick construction was unusual at the time and marks Sutton House as a place of some importance. Formerly a panelled room whose panels were damaged when the house stood empty in the 1980s, the former gallery now serves as a contemporary art space, the bare walls exposing the history and construction once hidden. Here we have the Great Chamber. It has been used as a social space throughout the history of the house. One of the former owners was the wealthy silk merchant Captain John Millward. He brought home elaborate silk decorations from the Far East in the 1600s and the room contains a treasure trove of his exciting discoveries from abroad. By the early 1980s, Sutton House stood empty. The departure of its previous tenants left it exposed to damage from vandalism, theft and fire. And in the middle of the decade, the house was occupied by squatters, which actually provided a measure of security for the building. And to celebrate the 30th anniversary of their time, this room has been turned into an exhibit of a squatter's bedroom. The Georgian parlour reflects the renovations of the mid-1700s when Sutton House was first divided up. This is the time the house began its long association with the Huguenots, French Protestants who came to England as refugees. The house has its own chapel, located in the cellar which dates from the original construction of the house. For almost 50 years, between 1891 and 1939, Sutton House was home to the St John and Hackney Church Institute, which aimed to promote the spiritual, mental, social and physical welfare of young men. The Tudor kitchen was a place that would have been hot and noisy as servants cooked food for the family and guests above. Leading us onto the courtyard and Wenlock Barn, this area was originally the Tudor flower garden, Built in 1904 by the St John's Institute as an area for functions, it still provides the same usage today. The Breakers Yard Garden is in reference to the industrial past of the area. And after consulting over a thousand local residents, it was created to playfully celebrate the past history of the house. From Tudor courtiers to squatters, Sutton House certainly has had a colourful past. 
short walk from the Opera House is the London Film Museum, which currently has an exhibition of all things 007. My name is Jonathan Sands and I'm founder and chief executive of the London Film Museum. Well, the museum started in 2008 and it originally started as a broad-based celebration of film and a celebration of the talent within the film industries. Bond in Motion exhibition is the largest official collection of original James Bond vehicles and it celebrates over 50 years now of James Bond and it presents all the original vehicles and artefacts from the E.ON archives, E.ON being the production company that produced the James Bond uh, films. There's various different um, iconic pieces from the Wet Nelly Underwater Lotus to Goldfinger's original Rolls-Royce Phantom III, which is on display. We have the fabulous Silver Cloud from A View to a Kill, which obviously uh, Zoran uh, pushes into the lake uh, with Tibbet inside. This was originally Cubby Broccoli's personal car that he lent to the production, hence the fact that there's a Cub 1 number plate on it. Have you driven any? Uh, I might have done to get them in here. Perk <laughs> of the job. <laughs> How do you choose which vehicles are here? Because presumably there's more than one in each film. First of all, there's, there's availability. So not everything was kept from when the film was made. But, you know, the key element is that every film is represented and we then build upon that layers and layers of items, such as the storyboard from that particular vehicle um, or the costume that uh, Bond or the, or the villain would use in that particular scene. Can I push you into a corner and ask yeah, you your favourite Bond? I knew that question was coming. <laughs> uh, well, because I grew up on Roger Moore, I've got to say Roger Moore. Um, although uh, I love everything Bond, but Roger Moore specifically because it was so instrumental in my growing up when that Lotus went into the water was almost life-changing. To see that a car can do that and, and change, you know, that's, that's something that sort of opens your mind up. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say Roger Moore. Do you have anything really unusual here that we might not have noticed? There are smaller items that are on display that are absolutely fascinating. One such uh, exhibit is the miniature DB5, third scale DB5 from Skyfall. Because uh, a lot of the special effects in Bond are still created with what's known as practical effects, which is physical objects rather than uh, computer-generated graphics, they create miniatures and they create miniature sets of things to, to create the effect. So the third scale DB5 is absolutely scaled perfect that's on display and they obviously blow that up rather than uh, an actual size you know a vehicle how long will this exhibition be here well at the moment uh, bond in motion is open indefinitely um, as long as people keep coming and they keep enjoying it we'll keep it we'll keep it running i'm heading to the museum of childhood in bethnal green which is part of the victorian albert museum Morning, Derek. My name is Rian Harris, and I have the great privilege of being the director of this extraordinary institution. Can you tell me something about the history of the building first? Well, the building has a wonderful history. If you look at the fantastic architecture behind us, the ironwork in particular was part of the original V&A in South Kensington. After the Great Exhibition in 1851, they built a temporary structure. It lasted for a short period of time. They then demolished that building, but they carried parts of the ironwork to the east end of London. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. To create a new museum. So the museum opened in 1872 and it was called the East London Museum of Art and Science. It continues as a place where all different sorts of exhibitions happen, but not specifically for children or about childhood. From the 1920s onwards, a visionary curator called Arthur Sabin noticed that there were loads of local kids running around this building and they weren't really engaging with any of the objects on display. So he decided to create a corner specifically for children and encourage various people to donate objects that would be attractive to the children. And he grows this bit of the collection, but it doesn't actually become a proper museum of childhood until 1974, where a very well-known director of the v at the time Roy Strong creates it as the National Museum of Childhood and giving it for the first time in its history a clear curatorial remit. Now, the layout of the museum, I believe it's sort of in four galleries, so to speak. First of all, there's a gallery called Moving Toys. It's about encouraging children and families to understand about movement and how toys are constructed when they physically move. Could be a simple clockwork toy right through to quite a sophisticated optical toy. Our second gallery is called Creativity. It's about objects that will encourage creativity in children, will get them excited and interested in doing creative things. And in that gallery, we have examples of children's own creativity. So drawings or works they might make themselves. And then in our third gallery, we call the Childhood Galleries. And these are essentially a bit more sort of social historical, where we look at a kind of clothes children wore, the kind of objects that are used to care for children historically. And the fourth gallery we have is taken up primarily by our temporary exhibition space. And our current exhibition is called Game Plan. 
and it's about the history of board games. And there really is something for everybody in that exhibition. It starts off with a game of Senate, that was a very ancient Egyptian game, and it goes right up to date computerized games. But it's all about based on the board. So what we're discovering is families are coming in, you've got grandparents, parents and children all coming together and playing really hard and being really competitive in here. There's also a small bit there, a permanent part of the gallery, that is called Good Times. It's about going on holiday, being by the seaside, joining clubs like guides and scouts. It's about the good times of childhood. So what early exhibits have you got here? The earliest object in the museum is an Egyptian paddle doll from 1300 BC. We don't have many things that old, but it is obviously a very old piece and one of the real star objects on display in the galleries. We have a programme where we have various festivals across the year. They often take place outside the museum because we've got fantastic grounds. So we celebrate St George's Day. People from all over the world come to celebrate that festival. We also have a big summer festival. It's a bit like East London's Summer Fate, where everybody comes and enjoys that too. So we have lots of ways to try and make the museum as inclusive as possible. And I think we're lucky because we are both a local community museum a national museum, and we also have an international profile. It's quite unusual for a museum to stretch from community right through to international. So do you have a favourite item, or do you have somewhere where you tend to go more often? I love so many of them, but if I have to choose, I love the dolls' houses. I think they're incredible. And they teach you about everything, about how people lived, how they interacted with each other, gender divides, class divides, because you've got servants in the household, you've got women that occupy particular spaces, children occupy particular spaces. They're also exquisitely beautiful as well. So you can think about aesthetics and taste from other times. You've got them all completely encapsulated in one small box. And people love them. They are some of the most popular things in the museum. They were actually used partly as status symbols historically to teach young women how to keep house. Because they'd be managing, you know, big, huge houses. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's only later on, really, when they start to become actual playthings. It's not just about nostalgia, it's about memory and identity. It goes straight through to here, and that's what this museum is really about. It's about connecting with your past, if you're a child today, connecting with who you are today, and then looking forwards. Tucked away in the crypt of a 19th century church, the Royal London Hospital has a museum covering the history of the hospital and also the wider history of medicine in the East End. Welcome, Derek, to the Royal London Hospital Museum. My name is Richard Monnier and I'm archivist curator here. We show a number of exhibits on the hospital and the history of the Royal London and also nursing and medical education. We've got nursing uniforms, we've got works of art, items about dentistry, and we've got a little exhibit on the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper. Entering the place, it looks quite spectacular. What can you tell me about the history of the museum? Well, we've had a museum here and the archives were here as well from about 1989. Medical science has improved greatly. Can you give me any examples of what it would have been like in the olden times? We show medical instruments and surgical instruments from the 18th century up until maybe the mid-20th century and it shows a dramatic change in how they were used and how they were designed, from amputation sores, which were very large and very difficult to clean, pretty incredible things like cups of bloodletting, and cauterizing irons for stopping bleeding. They would burn the wound. It sort of shows how really kind of primitive medicine was to, you know, very kind of minute scalpels, suturing, and that kind of thing that was used later on is quite radical and, and dramatic. A very good example of something we have um, from the 18th century, it's the 1762 diet sheet, and it shows what patients were given 
a number of things are striking. I think people were given quite a lot of butter. People probably know now that the water was, was very contaminated and it was safer to drink beer. Well, leading on from that, I did notice an x-ray machine. We have a 1930s x-ray control unit. It came over from the States and we were using x-rays here. Probably the first hospital to do so in this country, around 1896. They were only discovered the year before that, yeah, and then yeah. we realised that we could use them to, to look you know, at, at what's inside somebody. It was a needle in a foot. We've actually got that photograph oh, taken have. from the x-ray here. Amongst the uniforms and the medical implements, what else have we got here? Something you wouldn't associate with the London Hospital, but it's part of George Washington's false teeth. Oh, tell me more. Made in 1791, it's encased in a frame with a letter written by George Washington. The other half, I think, is in America. Don't know whether they'll be reunited or not. <laughs> That's interesting enough, though, isn't it? Well, I noticed um, there were several prominent characters that I've heard of. We're very well known to have uh, an exhibit on the elephant man, Joseph Merrick. Initially a patient and then an inmate at the hospital in the 1880s and his original skeleton is still um, a specimen in the Pathology Museum collection at the university. So the skeleton on display here is an exact replica? Yeah, it was made in America a few years ago and it means that people can see his condition in a very kind of realistic way. No visit to Whitechapel is complete without mentioning the darker side. Um, what's the connection with Jack the Ripper with the museum? We have one or two items on display. There's a plan of one of the crime scenes that was done by a surveyor to the City of London. And one particular murder um, involved our surgeon, uh, Thomas Openshaw. And he was asked to look at a piece of a human kidney, which was sent in the post to a kind of member of a vigilance committee. And we ended up with copies of letters written by Jack the Ripper to Openshaw and Mr Lusk. This is the From Hell letter that people know about. They're the best surviving copies. At 19 Princelet Street in Spitalfields stands a unique London building. Only open a few days a year, it contains London's Museum of Immigration. I'm speaking with Chair of the Museum, Susie Sims. In my 20 years of teaching the knowledge to potential London taxi drivers, this building is an important point that they have to know the location of. We love being on the knowledge, it's very special to us because this is such a special building because it captures so much about the East End of London. It's been here for over 300 years and it was originally first lived in by refugees. The formal title is The Museum of Immigration. It's a grade two star listed building. It's one of the most important heritage buildings in all of London and Britain. How long has it been a museum? It was founded as a museum in the early 1980s. And this is the oldest museum of immigration in all of Europe. It was the first ever to be founded. Could you tell me something about the previous occupants of the building? The first ones were a family named Augier, and they were French Protestants, and they had fled from France as refugees, hiding their children so they couldn't be found by soldiers. And these French Huguenots were very dominant in this area. About 90% of the people living in these streets were French-speaking Huguenots. And this Augier family, made beautiful silk uh, fabric 
That was very, very important in this area. But the Huguenots also found a great deal of discrimination. People in the city didn't always want to give jobs to newly arrived Huguenots, even though they were very skilled workers. A lot of French Huguenots had to take much more badly paid, low-skilled jobs just to survive. Could you tell me about anybody else who sort of followed them on? Because I know the area changes dramatically. Well, people came from all over the world to this area, but there were certain really big waves of migrants. The Irish, people coming to find work, people fleeing from famine, finding a home here. Then people coming from Eastern Europe, Jewish people fleeing from religious discrimination, coming to find a new home and safety here. And then after the Second World War, you find new waves of migrants coming from parts that had been colonized by the British Empire. So there's always been wave after wave of newcomers to this area, moving through, making their first home here. Can you tell me something about the current exhibition that's here? This exhibition is called Suitcases and Sanctuary, and it was made by local children working with us to explore six important waves of migration through this area, from the French Huguenots all the way up to the latest incomers from Somalia and people coming because of later wars. But this exhibition is based upon young people, nine and ten-year-olds, working with experts to imagine what it's like to be somebody else. It's a museum of ideas, it's a museum of empathy. What is it like to be a person living in a different place, a person with a different color of skin, a person with a different language, a person with a different religion? It helps us to think about seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. What can you tell me about this part of the building? So 1720, this was the garden of the Huguenot house. And it's 150 years later that a new group of migrants, this time Jewish people coming from Eastern Europe, who built this extraordinary Victorian synagogue. It's the second oldest synagogue in all of London and the very first purpose-built synagogue to be built in the East End. So men and women would have been sitting separately, as they do in many synagogues and mosques today. The men would have been down here, taking part in the service, and the children, of course, also sitting with women upstairs on these gorgeous balconies. This is not only a place of worship, important as that was, it was a place of education and a place of community, where people came together away from these difficult, fraught, dangerous working lives. There's an exhibit here, which probably has a personal connection for me. Well, you have an Irish background, don't you? And of course, the Irish migration story goes back many, many hundreds of years. This picks up on a particular and really tragic part of the story, the Irish potato famine. So young people today, people from all sorts of backgrounds, imagine being Irish people making their way to the nearest possible place. And on the very symbol of the famine itself, our young artists wrote these reasons for coming. And of course, also reminding us that the Irish, when they arrived, many people were hugely discriminatory towards them. People expected them to do the most dangerous and the most badly paid jobs. 
any outstanding features. I mean, the house is full of them. One I particularly like is what we call the cupboard of languages, where many of our visitors, our volunteers, have written in different languages. Listen to the walls. Listen to the building. Listen to the stories that a building like this tells, because this building is so special that it's its own exhibit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.